Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. There are so many reasons I've been looking forward to this podcast. First, where to begin? Roy Moore, Al Franken, tax bill, Jerusalem, government shutdown, Russia. The pace of politics is relentless, so you need someone of relentless energy to talk about politics with. And few have more relentless energy than Chris Matthews. But these times also call out for perspective and context. What in the world is going on? To many of us, it feels like there's an all-out war on decency, good behavior, justice, even democracy. So what does history have to say? And how many people can bring a better historical context to politics than Chris Matthews? Finally, the more out of control 2017 becomes, the more fascinated I've become with revisiting 1968. I keep wanting to consider how the conflict and anger and uncertainty of that year not only compares to what we're experiencing today, but also what can we learn from it? Chris Matthews helps here, too. So let's talk bio. If you only know him from cable television, you might not realize Chris's full background. Matthews began his time on Capitol Hill as a cop, briefly working for the United States Capitol Police. He worked for four Democratic members of Congress, including six years as chief of staff to one of the giants, House Speaker Tip O'Neill. Matthews also served as a speechwriter under President Jimmy Carter, though that's far from his only writing. Eight books, 13 years as Washington bureau chief for the San Francisco Examiner, and then columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. And I didn't even mention his time in the Peace Corps. But even if you know none of that, you surely know he's host of MSNBC's Hardball with Chris Matthews. And now, most recently, he's an author again, this time of Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. It's not his first book about the Kennedys. He's written two on JFK, but this one's different. The endurance of the idea of Bobby is, writes Matthews, because he stood for the desire to right wrongs that greatly mattered then and which continue to matter every bit as much in the 21st century. Let me state that more starkly. Now more than ever. Indeed. Before my conversation with Chris Matthews, though, one last item. I've been making an ask on these podcasts. I hope you like the conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, Leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter, and the great thing is, lots of you are doing it. Thank you. It's incredible to watch the numbers climb. I'm really grateful. As always, though, please be mindful of my other ask. If you don't like the conversations, just forget I ever mentioned it. One timing note. We recorded this conversation just before Al Franken's announcement, so we didn't discuss that specifically, but still, Chris's take on the issues overall was clear. As I said, I was looking forward to this conversation, and I wasn't disappointed. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Chris Matthews. Chris, thanks for joining me. It's great to be on. I appreciate your time. Well, I have some time these days. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's, there's not much. I mean, uh, is, is there any news happening? I mean, we, you know, there, there's not much happening uh, in the world. Stops. So, yeah. There's uh, about four fronts. There's Al Franken today, and there's, uh, my God, there's... There's the Roy Moore election on Tuesday, which looks pretty close, and uh, it looks like it's leaning to Moore. And we've got the moving the American embassy to uh, Jerusalem and uh, whatever Goddard Damarung that's going to cause. And uh, and then we have the situation in North Korea. And, of course, we have the ongoing Russian probe yeah. so- on both sides, the obstruction side and the collusion side. Yeah, that's about the four or five fronts we're on right now. Yeah, it's it's a boring time. I mean, it's a terrible time to uh, have a have a nightly news show, isn't it? I mean, you you got to figure well, out how are you going to uh, fill an hour I'm every night. Sad for 
Well, I'm fully sad for, for Alec because I know him, but yet these things keep coming and, and, and they show some kind of strange pattern of behavior. I don't know. I wouldn't, I don't know what to call it. So I'm just going to be quiet about it because I don't quite get it, but it's some kind of weird uh, entitlement, I guess, that's bad that has to be gotten rid of. You worked in Congress. You've worked in government. Whatever type of behavior, and this isn't where I, I want to talk to you about the Bobby Kennedy book, but just to follow on I that, never on that, one. that stuff, by the way, what I what I knew is I had an assistant for about 11 years, uh, yeah. Barbara Daniel, and we talk about everything. And she told me that there were um, two senators who you never got on an elevator with, that they were old style, strange guys that would grab your rear end. I mean, it was just it seemed to me like something from an old Italian movie or something. I didn't get it. But they knew it. The women all knew about it. And that, that's one story I did hear pretty, pretty powerfully. And so and, and you heard that there and, you know, in the different industries and, you know, you, you hear it. And then but then all of a sudden, you know, the, 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 the light switch flipped and everyone has has awakened um, and recognized that, you know, it may, you know, for whatever reasons uh, it may have occurred. That's just it's not acceptable. Um, Why the light switch flip? Well, I guess if being a political expert, which I'm supposed to be, I'd say it's a shift in power. I, I wouldn't get into morality as much in terms of determining it as much as in terms of power. And that there are women senators now, 16 Democratic women, uh, who have influence that goes beyond their numbers at this point because they can speak for women voters. And uh, I think in this Franken case, you see the power of, of those numbers. If it was in the old days, you see a movie like Advising Consent. There'd always be like one or two women senators uh, who were like characters. Maybe they may have been stoic, but they were characters. They were odd. Now the women's political presence and pressure is is there, and it can't be messed with. So just doing what I think I do for a living, which is understand power relationships, the the thing has changed. The situation in terms of uh, male-female relations and power shifting is real. And uh, I don't know whether the uh, I don't have any reason to believe that the um, that the misbehavior they're talking about and have been accused of is any worse than it ever was. It may be less than it ever was. But the point is that the power relationships have shifted and in, in, in times have changed. And also men are starting to I mean, I talked to one of my producers and they said, what do you, how do you describe sexual harassment? He said anything that diminishes me. And so, um, you know, professionally. And so it's it's a broad spectrum of things that uh, should be happening and are probably going to happen a lot less now because of the shifting power and, and rising power of women politically. Would Bobby Kennedy be at the forefront of speaking out on this stuff now? Oh, my God. I, I only can say it because I'm working on a, 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 a commentary on this. That I'll just say this because you can never go beyond a person's uh, life and what they said, but he did talk. I know his daughter, uh, Carrie, keeps telling me this, that he believed that you got to take the foot off the neck of the other person. In other words, the way people exploit each other, whether it's in uh, taking somebody in the country illegally and exploiting them, giving them those safety standards and lousy pay because they are endangered uh, is one or kind of putting a, a foot on your, somebody's neck, you know, uh, depriving somebody because of the racial background, something we got to stop exploitation. And I think he would, you know, not jumping too far. I think this is a case of exploitation where men are exploiting women, working under them for sexual purposes of any kind. Yeah. That phrase, foot off the neck, that's uh, – when I think about the politics of today, um, 
it kind of feels like that's what's going on, at least to me. You, you know, if you, you did forcing through uh, whatever the legislation is, whoever's got the votes, whoever's got the power, um, just just forcing it through. Whether it was uh, you know the tax bill just passed, um, the Jerusalem decision, just you know making that decision. I mean, across you know the we're, we've got the you know if a side has the power, um, they're going to go through. But it does feel. Um, like there's a, a foot being put on the neck. Um, do you agree? And, and what is that going to... Well, know? there's a sense now that if you have the vote, you jam it. And you don't try to develop a, um, any kind of consensus. Uh, you know, what they say in negotiations, leave a little money on the table, you know? Don't push it all the way to the end. Uh, give the other side a little ability to walk away from the table with the sense they had some role in it. You don't see any of that anymore. And maybe that's because the opposition isn't willing to give it even a nickel of effort to, to make the bill a little more acceptable. Remember what Obama said when he left office? Don't help them. Don't help them do it. In other words, what did that mean exactly to the Democrats? Don't help the Republicans do what they want to do. And that's another force working against uh, any kind of compromise or civility is that the uh, partisans are just saying, don't, don't let the other side use you at all. And that means no cooperation. So it's, you know, it's a vicious circle. Is this just hardball politics, though? Yeah, but hardball politics, I think, is something that should be used in cases when there's really something, some moral imperative that justifies It's like you have to bring federal troops into Ole Miss in 1962. Uh, you know, that's something you have to do it because it finally comes down to, are you going to integrate James Meredith or not? I mean, some things just have to be done. And, uh, and you don't always resort to that immediately, though. But there are cases where you have to win because you have to, you have to meet your duty and but I don't think that's the normal way of living. Every day is hardball politics. Well, of course, maybe that's what we're in right now. Or the, the uh, what do you call it? The um, the bad blood is so serious that nobody wants to help each other cross the street. You know, I mean, it has gotten that bad. I think nobody wants to help you. It used to be that you had two political parties benefiting the public by the fact that if one started to steal from the public in some mayor's office, the other side would go to war, run against them, and beat them and punish them for being corrupt. Now, whenever one side sees the other side about to do something good, it's going to get them credit, they destroy it. So instead of, uh, instead of helping the country by making sure the other side doesn't do anything wrong, they help themselves by making sure the other side doesn't do anything right, and that it's gotten that bad. It has gotten that bad. So which came first? I mean, I was thinking, you know, it's impossible to re- – it kind of feels like it's impossible to think about history, any type of history now without, uh, you know, think about it as context for what's going on today. But, you know, in reading your book, um, it's, it's just impossible to read uh, – um, you know, you, you wrote about there was the threat of revolution even back in 1932. Um, there's, talk, you know, looking at what happened in 1968, looking at the, you know, various ways in which uh, Bobby Kennedy used religion and religion inspired him into action and, and all, all the things that you uh, write about. It really was a it's a great book um, and a great read and a great uh you know, window into into history. Thanks. Which came first? I mean, you, did you look at today, what was going on today, and say, you know, wait, a minute, now is my time. Now is my time to write about Bobby, Bobby Kennedy because this provides it's it's the window to try to think about today. Or you, you know, had written two books on Jack, and you always kind of write a, wanted to write a book on Bobby, and you just started writing it, and then events uh, unfolded today the way they have. Well, first of all. Uh 
I had a point of view about Bobby. I was a Gene McCarthy fan in that fight, and uh, I came to Bobby because I thought he was the only one who could beat Humphrey and, and end the war. I got into Bobby because of all those books, all that effort of digging up Jack's story and realizing that Bobby was the essential player there, especially with regard to civil rights. He was the one that pushed Jack to go out on national television for civil rights. And he was the one that really guided him through the Cuban Missile Crisis. And and clearly he was the one leading the fight for all the civil rights, all that desegregation of the South. That was all Bobby. So I learned about him and writing about Jack, but um, the, the whole sort of denouement of the book, the, the reason book came to a purpose was when I came to the time of actually writing the book, which was really the, like in a race, the kick part of the race, when you really just to go into overdrive. And I began to write the opening of the book. I realized, my God, this is, an, this is a 180 guy from what we have now. This is somebody who had empathy for minorities, but also empathy for the white working class. This guy believed in unity and bringing people together across racial lines. This guy had a moral compass. He wasn't a perfect guy, but he had a moral compass. And he could talk on moral terms and religious terms. And I thought, whoa, what an opposite from Donald Trump. And and so when I began to really fashion the book in, uh, in January, I started to just write it that way. I said, no, this is what we lack today. And uh, I want you to read about what we lack because it's a sterling demonstration. We can have a better government than we have today that we can go back not too far in our past to refine or to find again rediscover you know politicians who really try to win by uniting rather than dividing and so the answer is i went digging on bobby and discovering who this guy was and all the mccarthy period and his rivalry with gene mccarthy and his antagonism with johnson and his going after the bad guys the mobsters he spent so much of his life chasing and the conflicts of his life which i found fascinating especially with regard to the mobsters like Giancana, that um, I came to the realization that he, this is a pretty good recipe for what we don't have right now. Yeah, and and Giancana, who uh, helped them in, in 1960, who Joe Kennedy, I guess, turned to uh, in the book. To oh, yeah, and I always to... thought that was brilliant, brilliantly, nastily, whatever, evilly, uh, the right, uh, Machiavellian, because Machiavelli would, you know, the genius is to get somebody to help you. Uh, once they've helped you, they're invested in you. That's one of the great brilliance of Machiavelli. You don't win friends by giving them things. People someone tell, oftentimes resent owing somebody. What you win a friend for is you, you get them to help you in any way they can, and they become one of your investors, one of your stakeholders. And that's the genius of Machiavelli. And to bring in Giancana, the mobster from Chicago that helped them in West Virginia, maybe Joe said, I don't, I don't need the money, but I need the help, and this guy's going to help us. At the same time, Bobby's going after Giancana and the Senate Rackets Committee, which he created, tearing into Giancana, humiliating him in public. Uh, at the same time, Jack Kenny's having a, a relationship starting in the 60 with Giancana's girlfriend, which is just beyond belief. Yeah. And at the same time, the ISO administration had started using Giancana to kill Castro. So here's Bobby, the attorney general, trying to enforce the law, and especially making a, a point, a priority of going after the mafia which Jager Hooper had never done, really lining them up. So I'm going to get this guy, this one, I'm going to get that guy, basically using the tax law to get these people. And at the same time, he's working against his father, his brother, and the CIA the whole time regarding their relationships with uh, Jane Connor. It's a and having to convince story. And having to uh, convince Hoover to start going after mobsters as opposed to communists, no? Yeah. Hoover was afraid, according to what I was able to find out, 
first of all, he was obviously, and I don't mind him on this, he was anti-communist, so am I. I mean, I, I was very American. But his refusal to recognize organized crime, the syndicates, is is really kind of questioning. You got to wonder what was it made of Hoover. One theory was he didn't. We wanted to keep the focus on anti-communism, but the other was he was afraid his guys would get corrupted if they got engaged in any way with the mob because the mob would buy him off. But it's still a great quandary. Why wouldn't Hoover? He was Mr. G-Man. Why wouldn't he want to get the bad guys? And yeah. Bobby did. You know, as you were talking a moment ago about uh, the context and and Trump and, uh, you know, the differences and the different times that we're in, um, I I don't know a lot. I haven't read, studied a lot about Fred Trump, uh, but your characterization of Joe Kennedy um, and Bobby's relationship and needing to prove himself and needing to, you know, and and ultimately wanting to be his own man and how he, you know, handled his uh, assignment, uh, you know, with the Navy and, and that relationship. Did you think at all? I mean, I, I, I'm no expert on the Fred Trump, Donald Trump relationship. Uh, but, but did yeah. that, did that come to your no, mind? No, I didn't at all? know that, you... but I think there's a lot of, uh, Oh God, uh, aspect to this, of the father son relationship. And, uh, I just really focused in on Bobby's relationship with his father. Who's not a good, who's not a good guy who, uh, took a sweet young kid and taught him the hard way. There's no good in being sweet or generous that you have to be an SOB. And, and the kid, first of all, becomes a jock, a kind of a classic jock. They're not exactly fun to hang around. And, uh, you know, oafish and, and entitled, all the, the worst aspects of college jocks. But he got his letter. He, he got it with a broken leg, basically, but he got it. And the old man liked that stuff. He brought the jocks home to Hyannisport and showed them off. And even Jack was impressed. What's my brother? He's not only hanging out with these guys, he's one of them now. And then Jack brings in Bobby, seeing how he's grown up and become his enforcer in his 52 campaign. He really got him elected to the Senate. So Bobby goes through this transition to being this sort of the person he wasn't because he wanted to win his father's love. And um, it was only, I think, in the book when, where I came to the conclusion, it was only about the time of his father's the, you know, debilitating stroke in late 61 that he, Bobby began to reemerge as Bobby as somebody who actually cared more about victims than he did about villains, about being a tough guy. And um, now that's, I didn't, I don't really, there's always parallels here. Like even in the movie, the Godfather between the, the, the father who is really not that American, uh, Marlon Brando kind of, and the son, Michael, who Al Pacino plays, who really is an American. He was, he wants to fight for his country. No matter how bad he gets later, he is in fact a patriot. And then Jack and Bobby and, and Joe Jr. were all like that. The old man was not a pro-American guy. He was a selfish business guy, really selfish, and didn't want to fight the Nazis. He had no problem with them, literally. And uh, and with the kids, I think all of them, when Joe Jr. got himself killed, it was, he took such a heroic mission. And Jack was missing for a week in the South Pacific, and Bobby goes becomes a swabby. I think they all were made, they wanted to make up for the old man. So I think there's a lot of that in that book. But I don't know about Fred and what, you know, Donald Trump coming from one of the boroughs and trying to make it in Manhattan. I don't know how much he was trying to prove himself, the old man, but yeah. let's face it. Whenever, even when your dad's been dead for years, you just think about when something happens in your life this big, you think, well, what's dad thinking? And you realize he's gone, but I'd like to talk to dad about this, or I hope dad hears this, or, oh my God, dad heard this. And I think you are always trying to think about yourself by your parents' heart and how they feel about you. I think that's normal. 
Another big theme that you can't escape reading your book, um, justice. It's such a, you know, an important concept for Bobby, and, and I guess it, it you know, it, the, the roots of it, um, you, you know, you talk about the, the role of religion for Bobby and, and the way, you know, he and his upbringing and, and the Irish coming over to Boston and the sense that that brought of, of you know, a f- understanding the plights of those, you know, who, who are less fortunate, those who don't have – and his definition of justice. And then I, I think about, again, you know, your book, Putting Today into Context, what's going on with the sense of justice today. And by that, I mean, you know, the, the Justice Department. I mean, uh, President Trump calling for, you know, complaining might be the wrong word, but musing that, boy, I, you know, I can't get the Justice Department to go after what I would like them to go after. Yeah. Um, has the definition of justice changed? Is the approach to justice changed and and did Bobby Kennedy bring in a an era of justice in the country and are we now seeing a shift on that or, or what what do you think about how we approach justice today when you look at how uh, it affected Bobby Kennedy's life I think we have to start with a conflict between the, the president's role in picking the attorney general and the attorney general's role being almost a Beckett figure, that even though you're picked by your brother, you're still responsible for your department and your uh, duties. And uh, it does get tricky. I mean, there's uh, nepotism there in that case, clearly. And this is brother he picked. Although his brother, Bobby, had you know clearly proved himself politically, having got his brother elected president before that senator, but also the tough role he played as, as chief counsel for the Rackets Committee for three, three or four years there. But but I think there's a couple of things. First of all, the Justice Department in 1961 through 63, its primary responsibility was carrying out the court orders, beginning with the, the Brown case back in 54, and uh, and, and trying to uh, enforce the law in the South, especially, to desegregate those great universities down there, Ole Miss and Alabama. And he had to do that in uh, opening up the bus stations, the interstate bus stations, Greyhound and Trailways to African-American passengers so they could be treated equally. These are all jobs he accepted as uh, attorney general. In fact, he went and gave a law day speech down at the University of Georgia when he first got into office that spring and said, look, I'm going to be enforcing the law here, just like I'm going to enforce other laws. It's not about race. To me, it's about enforcing the law, he told those Southern whites. I'm going to do the law here. And and so I think Bobby, uh, maybe I'm romantic about this. Uh, Bobby would not have taken sides in the current uh, antagonism between uh, Black uh, Black Lives Matter and and the, and the police. He would say justice is is uh, law and justice are the same. Enforce the law. Uh, the law enforcers are justice. They should be doing that. Uh, with the courts or the cops or anybody on the beat, you should be enforcing the law, and that will bring justice. I mean, he saw them as the same. And I think that maybe is too optimistic today to, to sell that in the streets or sell it in places where there's a lot of police in the community. But he didn't believe they were in conflict. He thought a good cop was the best thing in the world for justice. And that's why I, the first thing I discovered about Bobby on my own and collecting strength for this book way back in 71, he was the only guy that said hello to the cops on the Capitol, the only liberal Democrat, in fact, who ever really paid attention to said hello and treated them like these all white guys from, this, from the South, most of them. And uh, and he treated them like uh, equals, and that's Bobby's real democracy. He was really a Democrat, as Ethel said, from the time he was born. He, he looked out for regular people, white or black. He wasn't some elite liberal who thought, oh, "I'll be with the minorities," but I looked down my nose at the uh, Archie Bunkers out there. 
that Bobby was the opposite of that. He, that's Jack Newfield said he, he thought of waitresses and, and policemen and construction workers, hard hats as his people. It's so different than today where the division is social and class and, and even the democratic liberals are pretty, are not particularly good at understanding the, uh, the situation affecting a lot of the white poor and the white working class. And that's one of the arguments that's, uh, that, that's been made about what's happened, uh, you know, to some of the, uh, democratic liberal efforts over the last uh, years. Is it true? I, I read you you were a cop on Capitol Hill. Is that right? For three months, yeah. My, when I first got back to the Peace Corps, I went knocking on the doors on Capitol Hill looking for a job as a legislative assistant. And I finally got a job offer from Wayne Owens. He was LDS. He was Mormon. He worked for the, the last Mormon liberal from Utah, Frank Moss, the senator. And he had me do a try to answer some complicated uh tax question for somebody influential in Utah. And then he said, okay, I'll give you a job. You work at nights as a capital cop and you work in the daytime in the office. And so that's how I got my salary the first three months. And finally, after about three months, they said, come on, make me a legislative assistant. He said, okay. Uh, so I, uh, that was my starter job. Harry Reid had one of these jobs, these patronage police jobs. And I learned a lot. I listened to those people. I, I listened to the cops I worked with, the country boys. In fact, one of them gave me the lesson of my life. He said, I'm sort of the college kid hanging out with him, and he going, Leroy Taylor said to me, um, you know why the little man loves his country? Because it's always God. And I've never forgotten that. That's about gut patriotism. And uh, it's on the back of my book, if you look at the picture, the, the poor white family saluting Bobby's body as it goes by on the train. And uh, that gut, uh, gut patriotism has become disaffected from the Democratic Party, and it's a real problem. Uh, the party is too ethereal right now, too aloof, you know, to um, Martha's Vineyard, if you will. Hmm. And it has, it's lost its touch with the real gut working person out there. I don't know. I know why it happened, but I don't like it. Can they get it back? I don't think Bobby would have liked I don't think Bobby would have liked it either. They got to work for it. Trouble is all the issues now the Democrats pick on it, women's rights and this whole thing we're going through right now, they pick the social issues and the social issues whether it's gay rights or it's abortion rights or any, do tend to divide the working class. And um, and they separate the Democrats uh, from what would be a natural economic constituency. And it maybe helps them a little more in the suburbs, but uh, it definitely breaks down uh, the old uh, Roosevelt and Kennedy coalition. Chris, I got two two topics that I want to touch on with you from the book, and but I also want to be mindful of time. So uh, quickly, um, the first one was is religion. I'm going to ask you about it just a little bit a moment ago. But the the role of religion, and and you read the book, and you you, you just can't get past it with Bobby Kennedy. And I mean, from uh, his youth all the way up to uh, I was really struck when you you know pointed out that. Uh, you know, the first two things it sounds like uh, Bobby Kennedy did after hearing that Jack uh, was was killed um, or shot, maybe it was before he even found out that he was killed, was one, uh, uh, asking McGeorge Bundy to change the locks on the file cabinets, and then two, yeah. getting, a, getting a priest to uh, Parkland Memorial to save his brother's soul. Um, it also drove, obviously, a sense of justice and caring. How, how do you compare the ways Bobby Kennedy used and was influenced by religion to how it's used in American politics today? Well, in all the weeks of talking about the book now, it's about four weeks. I've never had anybody bring up that powerful fact. That's so powerful, Chris. The, uh, the fact that he cared instantly about his brother's soul and that he, he never interfered with Jack's sex life, his chasing women, if you will. He knew about it, but he never bothered him about it. The only time he bothered him about it was with Judy Exner because she was the mob boss's uh, 
girlfriend, Giancana's girlfriend. He thought this was just trouble. But even then, he would approach him and say, yeah, Hoover's all over that. And he, yeah. even then, he would only get his, his top aide, his chief of staff there, to go see, to get the message to Kennedy, his brother. He wouldn't go to his brother. He was, he was just squeamish about that. He wouldn't talk to Jack about sex stuff. And, um, but he did care about his soul. I mean, he's so Catholic. And, and we Catholics were raised with the idea the hour of your death is the most important because you must be prepared. And he wanted to get a priest there. And, you know, priests can actually do give an absolution. And sometimes they think we're told maybe a half hour after death even. So, I mean, he knew how important that was and uh, he went for it. And I think that's, you know, Jack had this sort of devotional Catholicism where he would stop by and just say, I got to go to this church and he'd go in and light a candle for his lost brother or he'd go kneel all alone somewhere at a grave site over his lost kids, the two kids they lost. Or he would uh, do the same for his lost sister, Kick. He had a kind of a family devotional feeling that, I don't know if it overrode, but it certainly was synchronized or paralleled with his sex life. But he'd also go to confession all the time and he would even sneak it, have, have secret service guys with the same accent standing in line around him so the priest wouldn't know who it was in confession. I mean, he would go through elaborate things. You're laughing because it was so regimental Catholicism. I mean, he would do it. But Bobby was a older boy who all through his life, his family, he and Ethel had rosary every night. And I mean, and, and Jack, and at the end, I figured, I, I tried to figure out in the book what it was about. He was talking to um, Robert Callup at Harvard, the child psychologist, trying to figure out what is it that moves people like uh, Dorothy Day, the, the old uh, you know, Catholic worker, lefty, leftish, a Demo- uh, uh, Catholic. What led them to do their, their good work every day? What got them up and out there working hard for uh, poor people and and Caesar Chavez too, who felt very close to. And uh, what is it? And I think I think he really wanted to be a true Catholic. And I think he wanted to be a in a way like a Methodist says he wanted to be a good works Catholic. You know, he it was true. It was real with him. How would he feel about the way religion's used in politics today? Well, I mean, he's a Democrat, and he would you know he the way it's used. I mean. It's so interesting. I mean, we have a race coming up in uh, Alabama that I believe if it goes for more, it will be because not because anybody thinks more is in great shakes. But if you go into that voting booth and you're an evangelical Christian and you have to register a vote, it is binary. All these votes are always binary, one or the other. If you vote for, um, uh, for the Democrat, Doug Jones, if you vote for him, you're voting basically for abortion uh, as a principle and the right to have an abortion at the very end of the, the term. If you vote for the other guy, you could be voting for to forgive or give a second gets or whatever to a fellow Christian. The second one's a lot easier to do, I think. So I think Moore's going to win because I think it's a lot easier to vote for Moore in, in the sense of giving him a break if you're a fellow Christian or saying you're for abortion rights. I, I just think one's permanent, one's serial, and the other one's cyclical. And I think, I'm like, I'm a political analyst. And I, so I think Moore's going to win. And I don't think Bobby would like a guy like Moore because I just think the guy has, you know, they have Megan's law in some states to make sure you don't have anybody like that living in your neighborhood. Why would you want him in the Senate? You know, yeah. it's a fact. And, and to, to close that's too, out. That's too cruel. But there is a sense that child molestation is almost an unfit. You can't fix it. It's just from whatever level of, uh, you know, 
our our study of mental and, and emotional illness is it's a very tough one to to, to fix the person. Just to to close out um, the the turmoil that we're in today, the country that we that we're that we're in today. I've been spending a lot of time I, between your book, between uh, uh, the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary. I don't know if you've had uh, time yeah. to, to watch. Oh, that was that. great. It was. I thought it was great. I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I did too. I, thought, I I love just listening to Peter Coyote. I just love <laughs> the, the, the the guy doing the uh, the, 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 the the voice the lines. Over, yeah. I just thought yeah. it caught uh, it caught me. And what really caught me was the, as often it is, the true documentary, the tapes of Nixon talking to Kissinger about how the election of, uh, of 72 was more important than those guys getting killed over there and the people we were killing. I mean, what a statement. The, oh. the election, and they, they said it to each other, like they were yeah. drinking the Kool-Aid together. Like how, somehow they didn't feel ashamed to do that. Yeah. Although I do think Nixon had shame. I think Nixon was unlike Trump and people like that. I think Nixon actually felt deep shame for what he did to his presidency in the country. I do believe that. Well, the, the audio, the, the audio was devastating. I mean, the, the Nixon audio also, I mean, hearing LBJ talk about sending, you know, the request for another 200,000, you know, boys sending them uh, over there. And that's, and you know, you know, now looking at, you know what they're being sent over there for. And, and uh, I, it's, it's been a, you know, it's really brought tears to me that uh, that that documentary. But but what also so what also struck me the the part of it that I really want to that I want to ask you about in terms of of today. I mean, when you go through the timeline of that year, you know, from the the Tet Offensive in, on, on January thirtieth, and then uh, you know LBJ says he won't run on the thirty first of March, and then five days later, you know, Martin Luther King is shot. And eleven days, you know, seven days after that, you signed the Civil Rights Act, and the protests increase. And then on June fifth, uh, Robert Kennedy is killed. And then the Democratic—I mean, the Democratic National Convention in, in August of that year. I mean, it's an insane year. And when I think about the, you know, what we're going through today, and how you think, well, God, there can't be a year crazier than two thousand seventeen. And you look at it just—I mean—and the, and the video as well of of the Chicago. Uh, protests and and Richard Daly inside the the uh, you know the the Chicago area there while the protests are going on outside just so as you've looked at it and you lived that time and that's in your book as well I, mean, I did it's kind of when you you it sounds like you kind of came of age and and I know you got I guess you went off to uh, uh, the Peace Corps in the middle I of went that, to Peace Corps uh, in Africa yeah, yeah for two yeah, years I left in that, that summer and I left behind a country in wreckage. Uh, that, that it was a sweet goodbye. Of course, I had friends at grad school, and I was saying goodbye to them all. And things were changing. The Graduate came out, uh, two thousand and one. Uh, Butch Cassidy, but movies started coming out that uh, that surely said something was going on. I do knew I knew something was going on in sixty eight in terms of our culture. It was heading off into this sort of age of Aquarius, if you will. Something was changing. Now we've all gone back to norms to a normalcy, I guess years later, but I think there was something zesty and exciting about it. Despite all the tragedy, you just felt alive. And my God, it was an amazing time to be around that great quote. I think at the end of, by Emerson about what a time to be in, you know, with the oldest confronting the new and the fathers are fighting with sons. And, uh, it's such a powerful reality we're living in. And I miss the sixties. I think Bill Clinton, it was Bill Clinton who said, those who look back on the sixties, positively are probably progressives and those who look back on it as nasty and evil are probably Republicans. That's just, that's a pretty perceptive uh, observation by former president Clinton, who was very much a sixties guy. 
at the time, people feared that the country was being torn apart. It's what people fear now as well. Is there any context, any view that you have on, on the risks we face today as you think about uh, what look, we went through in Look, Chris, uh, this might be my final point, but people ask me, when did things turn bad? And um, the way they are now. And I think they turned the way they did during the 60s when um, – the hard hats took the pro-war, pro-war position. The long hairs, the college kids took the anti-war position. The resentment by the hard hats, the working class, towards the rich kids who got to go to college was deep. I think Ronald Reagan rode that to the presidency. He wasn't particularly pro-Vietnam War. He was pro-anti. He's against the anti-war movement and the long hairs. And he went after the, the kids at college. And so it became an age issue, a generational fight. It became a racial issue. Uh, and, and it just got deep. And then during the Watergate period, I think the Republicans felt that the Democrats had rolled up the score on Nixon. They exploited it politically uh, and tried and won elections because of Nixon's failures, foibles. And then it got more severe after that. And, and when I got to the Hill, began to work up there in 71, I could sense it already was there. This growing, deepening uh, gap between uh, the classes and the, and the generations and the races and the ethnic groups, rather. And I just think that it's gotten, it just continues on. I remember sitting in a Democratic uh, whip meeting, they were like Thursday morning, and you'd go in there and there'd be about 20 guys there, most of the guys, a Democrat, they're in charge of rallying the party. And it was like one of those scenes in a cowboy movie where the Indians are meeting in a war council. And there's a Geronimo, we got to go to war, we got to go to war. It was always like that. We got to go to war. We got to fight. We got to get those guys. And it's just like that. Maybe it was the sugar donuts, the, the glazed donuts and the coffee, but people were just roaring for a fight. And I can only imagine it was at least that bad on the new new Guinness side of the fight, where he's over there cheering at the Geronimo's on that side. The gung ho, we got to always go to final war all the time. And it's it's just I talked about this a few minutes ago, 15, 20 minutes ago. That this this warlike chant of anger that drives politics today. I think it began back then, but it may have been because I don't think the fifties were like that, and I don't think the forties were like that. And I think it was uh, just anger as the motivating emotion of politics. And I think that's what we have today. And that's why it's not, it doesn't have much joy. Chris, thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. And, and the, the, book, the book was terrific. And it made me think, uh, you know, about all the things that we talked about today. So thank you. I really appreciate uh, your views. Yeah. It's my best book, I think, so far. And it's about hard. About hard. Terrific. Thanks so much, Chris. And thank you. That was my conversation with Chris Matthews. Now you know why I was looking forward to it so much. By the way, if you have some vacation time coming up this holiday season, I'd highly recommend his book. It was really good. My thanks to Chris for joining me, and as always, to you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Mm-hmm.